Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. And let's read this psalm together. Psalm 62. It's titled, To the Chief Musician, To Jeduthun, A Psalm of David. And this is the Word of God, Psalm 62. Truly, my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you. As a bowing wall shall ye be, and as a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times. Ye people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Trust not in oppression, and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Also, unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy. For thou renderest to every man according to his work. Amen. And with our scriptures open before us, let us seek the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come now to the preaching of the word of God, we recognize that we stand in great need of grace and mercy. We need thee to give us hearts that receive the truth as it is, the word of God. We need thee to Give help in every part of the exposition of the word that we might see it clearly, that you might take away the scales from our eyes, that you might free us from all distractions. We pray this, O God. And we pray most of all that you would give us a heart that trusts implicitly what the word of God says. 
that we would receive willingly the instruction of the word, that we would trust thy counsel as perfect counsel. And we pray that your spirit would move in our midst to take the word of God and to apply it individually to every soul. And we pray this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. In this psalm, we have the real, honest testimony of a man of God. There was a real day. A day as real as this day is. And there was an hour in that day when King David sat down and took inventory of the state of his heart and what his posture was like before the Lord. And as he mused on the condition of his inner man in those moments, he journaled what we have here before us in this psalm. And what he could write on that day is truly my soul waiteth upon God. That word waiteth there in verse number one. You might have a marginal note there in your edition. There's an alternate rendering for this word because the word is not really a verb. What the English translators have done is taken a verb from later on in the psalm and just brought it up into verse one so it makes sense because we need verbs in English. It's really a noun. And it's the noun or the adjective for being silent, for being still, for being at rest. And so you could render this line, truly my soul is silent before God. And the silence isn't about speechlessness. It's not about quiet necessarily as far as audible speech goes. The whole psalm's full of the speech of David. It's not about speechlessness, it's about a stillness, about, a, about an internal composure, a rest, a satisfaction of soul. David could testify truly, sincerely, that his spirit was at rest. We could think about in scripture examples of the opposite of this kind of internal composure. If we think of the children of Israel murmuring in the wilderness and them saying things like, is the Lord among us or not? That would not be this waiting on God, this stillness, this silence before him. Or we can think of the disciples in that boat caught in the storm, waking our Savior in the back of the boat. Carest thou not that we perish? That would not be this stillness, this waiting on God. That's not David's current posture. He's not saying, is the Lord among us or not? He's not saying, carest thou not if I perish? Rather, he's modeling for us in this psalm an internal composure of trust and rest. And this rest is exclusively in God. 
he testifies to that with his first word of the psalm. You see this, the word truly is the first word of the psalm, but you might have a marginal note there as well. And the other way you can translate this word, and in fact the usual way this word is translated, is the word only. Only. And in fact, there are six different times in this little psalm where the line begins with this word, with the word only. He just keeps sounding that word over and over again. And every time he does, it's the beginning of a line. So you see it in verse 1. Only my soul is still upon God. Verse 2. Only he is my rock and my salvation. Verse number 4, speaking about his enemies. Only they consult to cast me down. In verse 5, only my soul wait upon God. Verse 6, only he is my rock and my salvation. And then in verse number 9, only men of men sure, um, only men of low degree are vanity. And so there's six times in 12 verses where the line begins with the word only. And so some have called this the only psalm. In fact, if you read Spurgeon's Treasury of David and the little introduction he gives at the beginning of his exposition, he refers to this as the only psalm, a psalm of spiritual fidelity. Only, my resting is only in God. David has come to realize that it is the Lord alone who can do certain things. And his soul is at rest in this. And his honest testimony is that he is resting in God alone. And that's what I want to preach to you about this evening. Resting in God alone. Resting in God alone. Now I wonder if that just sounds so otherworldly to you. Let me remind you that this is not some esoteric example, some sort of ivory tower experience where David is just above and beyond all the cares of this world, and he's living this charmed existence where there are no problems. You know enough about David to know that it seems like his life experience covered the entire gamut of human suffering. And that's on purpose. David is supplied to us by the Holy Spirit as a benchmark believer. Really, there are two Bible characters that are given to us in the Word of God as examples to follow in our Christian life. Obviously, the ultimate example is our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're striving for Christ-likeness. But if we need a picture, and we do need an example of what that looks like in a fallen human being, yet living in this fallen world with a flesh, we have two examples. In the Old Testament, it's David. And in the New Testament, it's the Apostle Paul. In fact, the Apostle Paul says over and over again, follow me as I follow Christ. He says it, I think, six times in his letters. And David, if you stop and think about it, we know more about David than any other character in the Bible. 
There are 60 chapters of scripture about the events of his life. But not just the events of his life do we know. There are 74 psalms that we know that he wrote, which give us the inner workings of his heart. He is a a model believer given to us so that the Lord prepared him and worked providentially in his life so that his life would cover the entire gamut of human experience so that Christians in every age and in every circumstance and in every part of the world could look to the experiences of this man as a model for what the Christian life is going to be like. So you and I know, we know better than to say, well, this is just some sort of otherworldly kind of testimony. It's not really attainable. It is attainable. Here we have the benchmark believer of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament, who says, here is the honest state and posture of my soul. It is silent before the Lord, because from him cometh my salvation. He speaks, I mean, we know that he's not just saying this in a condition of not being threatened because look at the words he uses. He's my rock, my salvation, my defense. What does that imply? But that he is threatened, that he's in peril. He needs a defense, he says, and so there must be threats to this peace. He hasn't just arrived at some second blessing and there's no more worries from here on out. He feels constantly threatened in this piece. The stillness is is constantly threatened to be taken away from him. And in verses 3 and 4, he speaks about his enemies. He talks about these enemies, how they are persistent in conspiring against him, how they're full of lies and deceit. And and when we think about the Christian man or woman and the threats that they have to their rest in God and what it is out there which is made up of other people who are antagonistic against them and who threaten and conspire against their walk with God, this would be none other than the world. Right? The world is that system in which we live, which is antagonistic to a believer's walk with God. And which we must always be on our guard to not imbibe the spirit of the age. This is a man who knows his peace being threatened by the world. And he's counseling us. He's counseling us that there is a way to, in spite of all of the threats of this world and in spite of all the sufferings of being a human being in this fallen world, that waiting upon God and stillness before him and an inner composure of spirit is, in fact, attainable. It is, in fact, attainable even in this fallen world. And so there was a day, a day as real as this day, when King David took stock of his inner life, and even when threatened and pressured by the world around him, this is what he found. Only 
my soul is silent before God. Now, don't you wish that could be your honest testimony? That you could, with sincerity, pen a line like that. This psalm is in the Bible to counsel us how to get there. That is the unique contribution of this psalm. The reason that the Holy Spirit put this psalm, the unique reason that this psalm is in the Bible, is to show us the way of continually bringing our souls back to the place of resting in God alone. You see how he says that in verse number one and verse number two. Let's just read verses one and two again. Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. And now look at verses five and six. Almost the exact words. Almost an exact repeat. There are really just two or three differences and that's it. And it's the differences which highlight what's going on in this psalm and which teach us the unique contribution of this psalm, paying attention to those differences. What are the differences between verse 1 and verse 5? Well, in verse 1, he's giving his testimony. This is the posture of my soul. But what's he doing in verse 5? He's talking to himself. My soul... Wait, thou only, upon God. He's gone from a statement to a command. And then he says in verse number six, He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. But what did he say in verse number two? I shall not be greatly moved. Now, if we believe in the inspiration of the scriptures the verbal inspiration of the scriptures, then the fact that verse 2 has the word greatly and verse 6 does not have the word greatly is significant. It has to be significant. The Holy Spirit is not careless with his words. And so he has moved from, I shall not greatly be moved to a more of a confident position, I shall not be moved. How is it that he has moved to that place? And what is his strategy for bringing his soul back to this place of resting in God? That's what the psalm's about. And that's how we want to approach this psalm. We want to approach this psalm as divine counsel, perfect counsel. Counsel that cannot be improved upon for how to quiet down our noisy souls. You know what I mean by a a noisy soul? 
There's so much around us that threatens our peace and puts our souls in a panic or fills us with anxiety. There are fresh assaults every day. There are pressures that believers face as they run up a banner for the Lord Jesus Christ in their workplaces or in their neighborhoods. There are frustrations. There are unanswered questions. There are temptations and there are falls into temptations. And there are distractions and there are competing assurances and competing trusts that are constantly working against this stillness and this peace. And we have to admit that the testimony that a testimony of silence before the Lord of a quiet soul is not the default position of our souls. And it wasn't the default position of David's soul either. He had a strategy for getting there. And he reveals it to us in this psalm. So the way that I like to think about this psalm is in verses 1 and 2, you have the testimony. This is David's testimony. And in verses 3 and 4, you have the threat. This is what threatened his his peace, his inner rest, his composure of soul. Then when you get to verse 5, it's as if we get a little window into the way that David has come to that testimony. And it's as if we're able to peer into wherever David is when he's having his quiet time with the Lord. And we, have, we can look through the crack in the door, we can look into the window, and we can overhear what he does. And verses 5 and 6 and 7 is us overhearing, it's us eavesdropping on what David does to quiet his soul. And then in verse number 7, I mean verse number 8, excuse me, verse number 8, it's as if, as if David stands up and turns around and addresses us. And he gives us explicitly what we need to do now. We need trust in him at all times and pour out our heart before him because he's a refuge for us. Verses 9 and 10, he has to go back and he has to go through the different competitors to God and has to tell us who not to trust in. It's a shame that he has to do that. Verse nine, verse 8 should be where the, where the psalm ends. That should be enough. God is a refuge for us, Selah, done. But he knows the human heart, and he knows that we're constantly looking to some other place of refuge. And so he's going to cut off all those other refuges, all those other places. So sh- other people. Don't we, often, don't we often try to put our trust in other people? Okay, so he says, other people, whether they're low degree, whether they're high degree, okay, just that's the whole, that's all of them. Other people, vanity, lighter than vanity, not worth your trust. Okay, verse number 10, oppression and robbery. Isn't it our tendency to trust in our own ability to weasel out of the situation by sinning? We do that. We cut short these things. We, there's, a pressure, there's always a pressure relief valve for the child of God, and it's 
don't do God's will. As long as you don't do God's will, that's a, that's a pressure release. Okay, and there's a little relief there from the pressures that come from obedience. And so we're tempted to do that. And so, so he says, don't do that. Don't trust in that. And then the third thing is, if riches increase, set not your heart upon them. And don't we often, isn't it, isn't it often the case that we have thoughts like, if I just had $500 a month more, then, when we put our rest in that, we put our trust in that. And so he cuts off all these other competitors in verses 9 and 10, and he goes back in verse numbers 11 and 12 then to this parting thought that the Lord is a God of power and a God of mercy or loyalty. And he is a just God, so you can put your trust in him in any circumstance and pour out your heart before him and rest in his providence and in his working. That's kind of how the psalm, psalm breaks down. So I want to focus the, in the middle of the psalm here. Verses 5 and 6 and 7. Verses 5 and 6 and 7. And let's think in these three or four verses here about how to rest in God alone, how to quiet down our noisy souls when we are threatened to not rest in God, when we get anxious, when we're not at peace, what do we do? And we'll see him taking a couple approaches. And we want to follow his example. This is divine counsel. So what's the first thing he's doing in verse number five? What's the first approach that he's doing here? So we get this little window into the inner life of David. And we hear him saying, My soul, wait thou only upon God. For my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. Okay, so what is he doing in that first line? My soul, wait thou only upon God. This, at the very basis of this is here's what he's doing. Just basically what he's doing. He is commanding his soul to do something. He's talking to himself. He's addressing himself. He's commanding his soul. And there are times, there are a lot of times, where you and I need to command our souls. When we need to take charge of our inner state. And we need to tell it what to do. We can't just be passive as we go through the Christian life. If we're just passively reacting to all the circumstances and all the pressures, we will never have a soul that is at rest and is silent before the Lord. Rather, we'll have a noisy and anxious and panicked soul. There are times when we have to just stop and we have to tell ourselves what to think and tell ourselves what to believe. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in one of his books, I think on spiritual depression, said that a Christian must learn 
to talk to himself more than he listens to himself. That that really is a key to Christian living. To talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself. There's a big difference between sitting passively and letting circumstances dictate your posture or taking charge and talking to your soul. This is so scriptural. If you stop and think about how scriptural this is, you can come up with all kinds of texts. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What is that other than a man commanding his soul what to do? Or Psalm 42. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And so the example that David's showing us here is to speak to yourself, to order your soul. And there's a way to command ourselves that is the very best way. What do we say to our souls? What do our souls need to hear from us? What they need to hear are God's commands. You command your soul with God's word. You command your soul with God's commands. How many? Direct commands of scripture can you marshal in a moment of soul panic to instruct your soul what to think and what to believe in a time of stress and a time of need? Soul Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Christ. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Or verse 8 of this psalm. Trust in him at all times. Ye people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. You and I do not have to be subject to the whims of your inner man reacting to all the perils and the threats around us. We have the ability through the Holy Spirit to quiet our souls if we will give our souls scriptural commands in a moment of soul panic. We've got to learn that we cannot allow our spirits to be dictated by our circumstances. We must be constantly giving our souls God's commands to stabilize us, to give us a firm footing, to calm down and quiet the panic within. So command, command your soul. We see him doing that first. Now what's he doing next in verse number five? 
My soul, wait thou only upon God for. Now that word wasn't in verse number one. Remember verses one and verse number five were different? Were, were almost exactly the same, but there were two differences. The first difference was instead of having a statement is silent, you have command, wait. The second difference is the word for. That's not in verse number one, for. What are you doing when you start a phrase with the word for or the word because? Wait only upon God because, okay, what are you doing when you, when you talk like that? What you're doing is you're reasoning with the person. You're giving reasons, you're giving logical reasons why you ought to do this. And that's how God normally addresses us as his children. Sometimes he gives us bare commands, but most often he gives us a command and then he reasons with us about that command and tells us why we ought to do it and the foundations we have for trusting him in this. And so you have this man addressing himself with God's command and then reasoning with his soul. Here's why you ought to wait only upon God's soul. And he begins to reason with his soul. And what is the great reasoning that he does with his soul? What is the argument which he's using to stabilize himself? He's going to talk to himself about God, about who God is, about what God has promised, and therefore what God will most surely do. So wait upon God for because your salvation is from him or your hope is from him. Your expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense, so I shall not be moved. He's reasoning with his soul. This is, this is the great difference between how a child of God responds to tragedy in comparison to a, a, a child of this world does, a natural man does. You've seen the pathetic kinds of things that the world tells itself in the midst of tragedy. Statements like, I'm a survivor, or buck up, you'll get through this somehow, or lots of people have it worse than you, so cheer up. I mean, that kind of pathetic reasoning. All the world can do to find composure is to look to self. But David's reasons here are outside of himself. They don't refer to himself at all. He's all re he's reasoning about him, about the Lord, about God alone. God himself is the gold standard for weighty arguments with your soul. The weightiest, most true things that you know are truths about God. That's what we need in the bottom of our boat to give it that heavy ballast to keep it upright in the storm. That he is certain things. That he has certain perfections. 
and that because of this, he's, inca- he's, he's capable of doing certain things. That he cannot and that he will not fail to act in strict accordance to who he is. He cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his word. He cannot fail me, therefore, if I am his child. And right through the Psalter, you have the psalmist over and over reasoning like this with himself. It's me, God. Me, God. Me, God. Alternating lines about the Lord and therefore about himself. There are these facts about God that buttress these commands. And if you start to have your your eyes opened to this, you start to see these kind of things all over your Bibles. That very rarely do you have a bare command It's always buttressed in truth about who God is. So let me just show you one example here of that. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. In verse number 10. Here's a precious benediction that we all have taken comfort in before. 1 Peter 5.10 But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Now here comfort is ministered to the child of God, that God is going to do certain things. He's going to make you perfect. Really, the word there is to mend something that's broken and to put it back together like a broken limb. He'll mend you. He'll establish or stand you back up. The context here is someone who's taken a fall. I mean, the verses right before verse 10 are about our adversary, the roaring lion who seeks me may devour. So here's somebody who's taken a fall, but here's what God's going to do. He's going to mend you and stand you back up and strengthen you and settle you. Now, he could have just said that. But how does he begin this verse? He's the God of all grace. Now, think about that in relation to what the end of the verse says he'll do. Here's a child of God who's taken a fall. He's fallen prey to the devil. He's failed. God's going to do these things for him. Why? Because he's the God of all grace. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's tender-hearted. When a child of God fails, he's moved to pity more than he's moved to anger. He's the God of all grace. And not only that, the next phrase, he's the God who's called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. He is committed from all eternity that we would be made like Jesus Christ. He is so committed to this progress of sanctification within us 
that he uses literally all things. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose, all things he's using for their good, that they might be conformed to the image of his son. And so those two truths about God, he's the God of all grace, He's the God who has purposed from all eternity that I would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Think about how that buttresses and reasons with me about, yes, I can trust him to perfect and establish and strengthen and settle me. And what we need to do when we're reading our Bibles is to pay more attention to God. To pay more attention to what the scriptures reveal about him. Because, the, because what our souls need is not some kind of hints or how-tos or three steps to whatever. What our souls need most of all is God and truth about God and more light about God so that we will trust him more and love him more. And so what David does in Psalm 62 is he commands his soul with God's commands, and then he reasons with his soul from who God is and what he is said. He is my rock, my big, immovable boulder my cliff. He is my salvation. He is my defense or strong tower or refuge or fortress. I shall not be moved. But you know there's a key word in verses 5 and 6 when he's reasoning with his soul. There's a key word. And without this word, There's no comfort in any of this. And this is why there are many professing believers who receive little comfort from the attributes of God. And that when things like this are told to them, when they receive this kind of counsel, about who God is and what he has said, they respond, unfortunately, with what I need is something practical. This is real life. This is a real life problem. What is the key word in verses 5 and 6? And this only comforts if you can honestly say this word. It's the word, my. My. Look at verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. Verse 7, and God is my salvation and my glory the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. 
the secret to being able to derive any comfort from who God is, is being able with sincerity to say, my. You can pray. You can be in the word. You can memorize scripture. You can turn around and quote the Bible back to yourself in a moment of need. You can argue with yourself in scriptural terms. But if you are not confident that he is your God and that you are his, if your soul shrinks back from saying my, you'll derive no comfort out of any of that scripture. You have to be able to say, my. God is not merely the content that fills up a systematic theology textbook. He's our God. By oath, by covenant, and by blood. He's our God. And when we can, by the Spirit's working in our heart, Know with a confidence that I am his and that he is mine and that even when I failed him, I can return to him because he's my father and I'm a disobedient child. I'm in this family. When you have that kind of confidence with God and you know that all things are yours, in Christ, because of what he's accomplished for your soul. And you're able to say, he's my rock and my salvation. That is how you're able to quiet your soul. You have to be able to say, my. Martin Luther said that real religion was in the personal pronouns. My. Mine. He's mine. This is how David dealt with his own soul in these verses. He commands his soul with God's commands. He reasons with his soul from what he knows to be true about God, all under the umbrella of assurance that he is for me and that he's my God. You think about a cross-reference that we can all think of. There's that precious verse in Isaiah 26, in verse number 3. Maybe this sums it up the best. Look at this in Isaiah 26, in verse number 3. Isaiah 26, in verse number 3. What can we, how can we be bettered by Psalm 62? What can we do by the grace of God to change? We don't want this just to have a momentary impact. We want to work this truth down into our souls 
so that our spirits are more and more characterized by that stillness and by that peace that honors God. Look what Isaiah says in chapter 26 and verse number 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever. For in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Now think about those two verses in the light of what we've just seen in Isaiah 62. They're really saying the same thing. Perhaps you can see it if you look at it backwards. Look at it backwards. Verse 4 makes the assertion. The Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Or another way you can translate that is rock of ages. He's our rock of ages. Therefore, trust ye in the Lord forever. So because he is this, because he is our rock of ages, our everlasting strength, therefore, trust him forever in any circumstance. Okay, look at verse number three then. There is this man who has stayed his mind. How has he stayed his mind? Well, he stayed his mind by commanding his soul to trust in the Lord and reasoning with his soul about God being his, his rock of ages. So he has steadied his mind. He stayed it. It was going off into a panic. It was noisy. It was anxious. He stayed his mind by commanding his soul and reasoning with his soul. And then what does God promise to do in verse, at the beginning of verse 3? God keeps that man in perfect peace. You and I do not have a spigot to turn off anxiety with. It's going to take God giving us this peace. And the scriptural way of arriving at that quiet, resting soul, which rests in God alone, is to go back to who God is as my God, reasoning with my soul and commanding my soul to act in accordance to that truth. I mean, think about Philippians 4. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is still stayed, steadied, composed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. May the Lord give us grace to look to him 
and to stay close to him. To not go after all the competing assurances and trusts that are presented to us by the God of this world. But rather to look to him alone. And may he give us that perfect peace that he's promised to give to those who stay their minds on Jehovah. Well, let's pray. Lord, our gracious God, you are so kind to give us counsel like this in thy word. Certainly, you know our frame and you remember that we are dust. So we thank thee for the example of David and we thank thee for this instruction that we have received and we pray now for grace to put it into practice. Oh, how often it is that things are easier said than done. We know this to be true. And yet we trust your word that this is the way to peace and to quiet. And we so want to honor thee with our reaction to troubles. We, we don't want to bring reproach upon thee by living always in a state of anxiety and disquiet. We want to be able to say, Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God thy order to order and to provide. Lord, we want this to be our testimony for Christ's sake. We know this is how our Savior lived, and we want to be more like him. And so give us grace, Father, to give our souls your commands and to be quick to reason with our souls from what you've, what you've communicated to us, what you have assured us is your character, which is unchanging. And minister to us that full assurance of faith that can confidently say, My. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.